For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. How to face the moment when you suddenly lost control of your body, mm. when your journalistic career suddenly came to a halt, when your mission, your service, your determination to look after the city you love by writing and observing suddenly all come to a stop. There was no hope. Because all the doctors told me, you might spend the rest of your life on a wheelchair. It was almost a miracle that I can resume walking. What's more important is the shadow, how you face the shadow. I only realized that Jesus Christ was walking with me. We do not just dialogue for dialogue's sake. Before coming to the dialogue, Christians need to listen to the very bottom of their heart, to reveal their own pain and also their darkness. They can recognize that the grief, their anger, and also their frustration. And then we can ready ourselves to uh, have dialogue, to listen to each other, especially to those who have opposite will with us, to hear about their frustration and to hear about their anger. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. On February 26, 2014, the former editor-in-chief of the Hong Kong news outlet Ming Pao was targeted and attacked by two men, stabbing him in the back and legs, not to kill, but to maim. They were trying to send a message. Just a month prior, Kevin Lau, had been ousted from his leadership of Ming Pao, known internationally for its credibility as a news source, its commitment to liberalism and freedom of press, and its investigative journalism. His removal and subsequent slashing was seen as a direct assault on journalistic freedom. And in the days following his nearly fatal attack, while he fought for his life, thousands of journalists and pro-democracy supporters demonstrated in the streets of Hong Kong as the event became international news. Kevin's story continues. He survived the attack, but the process of healing was long. He almost lost all the blood in his body, and as the nerves were severed in his legs, he had to relearn how to walk. But even as his assailants were tried and convicted a year later and sentenced to 19 years in prison, he remained committed to forgiveness, even as he faced his attackers during the trial. It was the inner strength to forgive that preceded and paved the way for external, physical, and social healing. He explains this as constantly being on two journeys, the outside journey of rehab, therapy, physical and social healing, and the inside journey, which he understands as the life of Christian spirituality in meditation and prayer. In his own words, It begins with your internal world, with your heart, through meditation and prayer, through observing, through seeking, thinking, and praying. Only the strength, the peace, and the hope that you find in the inside journey that enable you to face the outside journey challenges. 
And on this episode, Kevin Lau joins me for a conversation with his friend and fellow collaborator for social participation in Hong Kong, Andrew Kwok, a theologian at Hong Kong Baptist University. Together in this episode, they reflect on the spirituality of social participation in a society that is experiencing censorship, political disagreement, and disenfranchisement that leads to violence, increasing polarization, tribalized media consumption, curated only to confirm the views you already hold. This, of course, is a sketch of Hong Kong, but it's a sobering thing to realize how well this describes much of the world we know today. Kevin and Andrew offer us an opportunity to appreciate the particular struggles of Hong Kong and learn how to respond to our own unique challenges by listening to their experience. Thanks for joining us today. Andrew, Kevin, I'm so delighted that you've joined us on For the Life of the World. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. How would you describe the story of what's been going on in Hong Kong over the past three to five years? Up to today, clearly there's a long history that goes into it, but especially from the perspective of social participation for Hong Kong people and the public discourse that has surrounded it. I would use two words to describe what we are experiencing in Hong Kong at this special moment. The first word is collapse. We are seeing a lot of things that we treasure, long-established values, traditions, good practices, collapsing right in front of our eyes. It was like Jews in the first century, mm-hmm. seeing Jerusalem and their holy temple collapsing before them. Mm-hmm. That's how we felt in Hong Kong. When rule of law, civil liberties, freedom of speech were being eroded every week. The other word I want to use is rebuild. Although we cannot rebuild the entire system, although we cannot restore things that were lost, but I've seen people supporting each other, attending court trials just to show their support, writing letters to young demonstrators in prison, doing small things to show care to support each other. It was like seeing the Jews in exile in Babylon, forming synagogues and small communities. That's what we are seeing. Andrew, do you have anything to add to that? I would like to say that in the past few years, we are going through a process of awakening. Hong Kong is a financial system, economic hub, And and so uh, most of the people, they just concentrate to earn money and to establish their own wealth. I think though, in the last very few years, we experienced a very painful process of political conflicts and vanish of political hope. But actually, we are going into a process of awakening. More and more Hong Kong people, they are being awakened to realize that Hong Kong is not just uh, a city for earning money, but a city that they love, a city that they have a lot of good values they cherish. And the second thing is that we are now in the process of searching for a real hope. Civil disobedience can only be successful in a constitutional government. 
And Hong Kong people, they consider their government somehow constitutional. And so they want to search for a kind of political hope through political movement. But I, I think after several years, now everyone realized that actually that hope is a kind of dream, if not a lie. And so that now, I, I think not only Hong Kong people, but also Christians, we need to face brutally that what is our will hope for our city and for our life. And just as Calvin had mentioned, I, I agree with him that now it seems that everything is collapsing and, and so that we are searching for real hope. I think that Christians, we have a part to play to, to bring hope to the society as well. Now, Kevin, I wanted to ask you, your personal story is wrapped into the story of Hong Kong as a city. You were attacked in 2014 while you were the editor-in-chief of, was it Ming Pao? Yes. I wonder if you would mind telling us the story of that attack and how you have been healing in the wake of that and how you now understand it as part of the broader story of Hong Kong. I was attacked on the 26th of February, uh, 2014. That was a Wednesday at 10, 15 in the morning. And I was uh, on my way to uh, my office. And I stopped at a place where I used to go for breakfast. And when I stepped out of my car, I was attacked at the back. I didn't see the guy who hold a chopper. But uh, when I realized what's happening, I mean, the two men were quickly leaving the scene on a motorbike. And I found out I was injured when blood drops onto my hand. Mm. I was carried by ambulance to the hospital and five hours to six hours of surgery. Subsequently, the doctor told me that I lost some um, 4,000 cc of blood almost uh, the entire uh, blood I have. Oh my goodness. Uh, so they have to inject a lot of the blood uh, into my body mm. during the surgery. And the sciatic nerve on both legs were suffered. Although um, they have immediately reconnected, but the nerve disconnected from the brain was mm. ruined. So that means both of my legs, I cannot move, I cannot feel for a long time. So I stayed in hospital for five months and then underwent four years of therapy. Wow. Um, that was a long process. Yes. But the most difficult moment was about 16 months after the attack, when I, for the first time, faced the two attackers at the courtroom. Mm. They were charged and they were brought to the courtroom. And I was the witness. Yeah. So I, just, I have to stand there two days facing wow. them at a very close distance. Mm. At that time, they were convicted by the unanimous decision of the jury. And subsequently, the judge gave them 19 years of imprisonment. The maximum sentence is 20. They got 19. After the trial, reporters came to ask me, what did I feel? And I told them, I forgive them. Hmm. That was possible only because Jesus Christ asked me to. I couldn't do that. I had a long struggle yeah. before I attended the court trial 
If I said I would consider forgiving them if they show some sign of repentance, that would be a more acceptable answer to most of the people. But that's not what Jesus Christ demands. Mm. Unconditional forgiveness. And I could only do that by fixing my eyes on the cross. Yeah. That's where the healing of my wounded memory starts. Without that healing of my wounded memory, I could not face, I could not face the trial. I could not face the two men. I could not face the past. Why do you think that you were attacked? At the appeal, the court found based on investigation and evidence that the attack was related to my work in the newsroom. Mm. Although it was not clear which part of my work, because we have been conducting a lot of investigative journalism, which is highly offending to those people uh, with power and money. But the court was convinced that it was related to my work. Mm. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the healing of wounded memory. Uh, that, That phrase of yours really struck me. What was the struggle like for you? It was like how to face the moment when you suddenly lost control of your body, mm. when your journalistic career suddenly came to a halt, <sighs> when your mission, your service, your determination to look after the city you love by writing and observing, suddenly all come to a stop. There was no hope. Because all the doctors told me, you might spend the rest of your life on a wheelchair. It was almost a miracle that I can resume walking without the assistance of tools. But, But what's more important is the shadow, how you face the shadow. I only realized that Jesus Christ was walking with me. When I went back to the scene, I went back there. Yeah. I want to see if the shadow was strong Mm. enough to, to stop me from going forward. But Jesus Christ was there. Mm. Even at the moment when I was lying on the on, on the pavement waiting for the ambulance to come, he was there. This is the starting point. This is the starting point where your memory of the horrible thing, the most horrible thing in your life, start to look not so horrible because Jesus is there. Mm. I was asked by some young people at church or at other public meetings, they asked Mr. Lau, why could you forgive the two men who attacked you, who wound you, who caused so so much loss to you? And I said, yes, forgiveness is important, but I cannot equate my own situation with many people in Hong Kong in their situation. Yeah. Because in my case, I was lucky enough to have a fair trial in which the truth was revealed. Justice was done. 
Yes. So that I can have no burden. I, 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 the only question I need to consider is whether I forgive or not. Mm-hmm. So reconciliation, healing is far easier in such a situation. But whereas in the macro environment here, when there's no independent investigation, no truth being established, no justice being seen to be done, mm. how can reconciliation be even started? There's no reconciliation. There's only anger. There's only grief. There's only despair. To fully appreciate the power and extent of the assault on Kevin Lau, not just the brutality of the offense and its literal and symbolic attack on journalism, freedom of the press, peaceful protest, and the very flourishing of a metropolis like Hong Kong, you need to understand some of the city's political history and context. For over 2,000 years, starting with the ancient Qin Dynasty, Hong Kong was an established economic hub on the South China Sea. By the 19th century British Opium Wars, the Qing Dynasty ceded the region to the United Kingdom. Then, in 1997, it was returned to China as the, quote, Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China. As such, it has enjoyed, in theory, more freedom and less censorship than mainland China. But for the past 24 years, this has been a fraught relationship. Things came to a head in 2014, not only with Kevin's assault, but with the launch of the Umbrella Movement, a 79-day occupation named for the peaceful use of umbrellas against police force advocating for transparency in elections and universal suffrage. This movement began not just on the streets, but in churches, led by Benny Tai, a Christian, legal scholar, formerly at the University of Hong Kong, and a pro-democracy activist. That fight for free elections continues. The Umbrella Movement was ultimately unsuccessful. And by summer of 2019, the conflict between pro-democracy protesters and pro-establishment reached new heights of both participation and violence. This time, two million people took to the streets over the judicial independence of Hong Kong. And after a summer of heated protest, the pro-democracy movement secured a landslide victory in Hong Kong's November 2019 District Council election, which carried with it a huge symbolic meaning for pro-democratic action. But by the following summer, June 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, China instituted a national security law in Hong Kong, essentially criminalizing acts of protest and any kind of political dissent. Since then, Hong Kong censorship has increased. Chinese nationalism has become the litmus test for civil servants and politicians. Elections have been reformed, likely not toward fairness and transparency. And activists have been arrested and persecuted even more. There are reports of police brutality, even torture and sexual assault. It's in this context that both Kevin and Andrew now continue their work for peaceful dialogue and Christian public engagement in Hong Kong. Andrew, you have taken an approach of activism and you've made it a personal project to establish a kind of dialogue between people who differ first, in some cases differ very extremely, but also people who have been at odds and in conflict. I wonder if you would comment on that same aspect from your own perspective of working for reconciliation in Hong Kong. I I agree very much uh, with Kelvin. No truth and justice is very difficult to have a real and a kind of comprehensive reconciliation among the members of the society. 
One of my concern is that why and how the society will increase their enmity and somehow the tension between uh, each other. And I think that if this kind of tensions grows up consistently, one day we'll find that our conflicts and our violence will become much more serious. Uh, and so actually my project, when members of the church or the young people ask me whether you want to well, reconcile uh, with each other, I, I say, I recognize the difficulty. But I also recognize that actually all the political conflicts or even the evils of the society mm. usually grow up from our human nature and grow up from our anger and our grief and our sense of injustice. Mm -hmm. And so that actually the dialogue has several functions for me. The first thing I emphasize that we do not just the dialogue for dialogue's sake. Actually, before come to the dialogue, Christian needs to listen to the very bottom of their heart, to reveal their own pain and also their darkness. If they, if they can recognize them, the, the grief, their anger, and also their frustration, then for Christians, at least we can share with someone and also pray with each other. And then we can ready ourselves to uh, have dialogue, to listen to each other, especially to those who have opposite will with us, to hear about their frustration and to hear about uh, their anger, and we can pray together. So actually, I, I would like to say that my project is more humble than to do reconciliation. My project is something that I want to save the better part of our human nature before we, the whole society fall into a kind of evil situation that we will fight with each other. And then we think that we are doing harm to others with very legitimate reasons. And you can see that actually in the modern Chinese society. Mm. Well, I think Politics is one problem of a lot of very dark time that we experience. But also, people, when they do not recognize the dark side of their personality or the dark side of the human nature, then our society can, will be good sit back for this kind of violence and conflicts. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, as a theologian, I'm more humble that I would want to bring uh, awareness to uh, my fellow Christians to recognize the, this danger and through prayers and through listening and through our silence, then we can touch this dark side and ask the help of our God and to bring it to be our awareness and then to avoid our dark side to harm others. So what I find interesting about this and each of your vocations, you're both concerned with seeking truth and communicating that. Kevin, for you on the journalistic side, and Andrew, for you on the scholarship side. And 
I would like to hear what you have to say about how not just Hong Kong people, but of course, anyone who has been brutally harmed, offended, anyone who has been the victim of injustice or oppression. I wonder if each of you might talk a little bit more about how communication, listening, seeking the truth together, praying together, how does that, how does communicating about that allow for those people to forgive when justice can't be secured? For me, as a theologian, I think that the first thing we, that the church should do is to be in solidarity with suffering, with the suffered. I, I think when we are in solidarity with the suffered, then you'll find that actually you can hear a lot of stories. Those stories painful with frustrations and very bad experience. But at least we can see who suffered and then we let those stories being heard. I think one of the necessary conditions for having truth is that we have all the information that we need to make the judgment. And we will find that actually those being suffered, usually their voice cannot be heard. And then the second thing, I think, for the church, now, actually, for Hong Kong church, many of the church, we are from the Calvinist tradition. And I think from the neo-Calvinism, one of the very good theological resources is from Abraham Kuyper's uh, theology of the so-called sphere sovereignty. I think that is also important to preserve the truth according to the sphere sovereignty. A lot of people to think that truth always related to power, but when they speak about power, they will just refer to political power. But I think the neo-Calvinist sphere sovereignty concept tells us that actually the truth is not just in political power. But in all the professionalism, if all the professionals, they try to do their best according to their profession, then you will find that the, the truth is there. And actually, for example, in Hong Kong, teachers, social workers, medical doctors, uh, accountants, lawyers, now you will find that if we try to keep our professionalism, somehow we will face pressure and it is not easy. But this is exactly the case that we will find that we need to keep the truth within these professions. And Hong Kong Christians, I think now also that is very important when we speak about the truth, not just to focus on politics, but also all life aspects of the society. We need to preserve the truth. I find it very difficult. Uh, there was a book by Walter Brueggemann. Hmm. It came out a few years ago. It attracted me because uh, the cover of the book was designed in a very interesting way. It was a traffic light, red, yellow, and green. And the name of the book is Reality, Grief, and Hope. Mm. Bugerman's film was that you need to recognize the reality, the red light, embrace it as the reality, 
And then let your grief over all the losses be expressed, be communicated. That's the yellow line. Then you can reach the point of finding hope from the Word of God. That's the green line. Using that metaphor, right now, we have difficulty in recognizing the reality. Mm. People run away from it. People mm. want to deny it. People just can't face it. And institutional churches, Chinese Christians, are very weak at grief, lamentations. Mm. We don't know how to. We don't know how to mourn. We don't know how to express our grief and comfort each other. We don't know how to communicate it. And is that because of the problem of the inability to recognize reality and the question of truth is still open and concealed? Partly because the wall of the city keeps collapsing and collapsing. Ah. And the dust has not settled yet. Mm. Every week, something new comes up yeah. from the new. And you see another stone, another cornerstone, another wall being taken away, being torn mm. down. So the reality, well, though, very clear to me, but it's not yet clear to some people, or maybe mm. too clear to some people mm -hmm. so that they leave. Yeah. How specifically do you see the task of journalism and truth-seeking through journalism being a force for good in Hong Kong? It's still there, struggling, trying to survive. Conscientious journalists who cannot stay in mainstream organizations because of ownership change, because of management change, because of all kinds of pressure, they have to work in very small uh, online news organization with a very humble salary, with very tough working conditions, yeah. and they are just struggling. How do, you, how do you approach journalism personally at this point? Do you experience that same struggle in the wake of being attacked for your own efforts at trying to shine a light on the dark places of Hong Kong? How do you regard your profession and vocation now? I'm lucky. Uh, I was kind of like being put into a shelter by God because of the injury, because of the attack. So I left the front line. I, mm. uh, I, I, now I'm only writing one weekly commentary column for the newspaper. So being a columnist, writing once a week, the pressure has much been reduced. So I keep writing, voicing, keeping an eye on what's happening, but I do not need to face what's happening moment by moment, day by day. That was a big change. It was kind of like you stay, you're still in the battlefield, but instead of staying at the front line, you move to the back. I wonder if each of you would be willing to talk a little bit about the role of freedom and personal responsibility in the search for truth? How do you see the role of personal freedom and uh, responsibility in society 
maybe I go back to what Kelvin has talked about, the culture of the Chinese church, that we do not know how to grieve and we do not know how to mourn. And actually, why this? I think that is also related to the search of the truth. Actually, that we do not know how to mourn is a kind of Chinese culture. I would like to say that for the majority of Chinese, we are very resilient. <laughs> we always receive the tough time and then, oh, then then just do our own things. That, that is a very typical Chinese culture. And so actually now I think for Hong Kong church and as well as maybe the church in the mainland, actually we are under a, a, a very big test how we recognize uh, the value of the biblical teaching, for example, to, to stand with the suffering. The suffered and to recognize the reality and to grieve and to mourn and to ask for help from God rather than we just follow our cultural practice and, and to do the things as uh, business as usual. Um, without this kind of enlightenment from the Bible or um, from our, our faith, I think we, we are quite difficult to see the truth. Actually, because we will somehow adjust to live with the situation, to live with the political pressure, and then and then to ad- adapt ourselves to the, the the new reality, and then we will not uh, use the real hope, and then to reflect our reality. I think the uh, relationship between. Um, truth and justice and mercy and kindness actually is quite a dynamic relationship. So whenever we cultivate a relationship, we should recognize our dark side. And actually that relationship is a kind of true seeking of ourselves, not just to make good relationship with others. And then in that relationship, then we will find that we can have a space that we allow different opinions and the truth come in. The truth-seeking process is a kind of spirituality. And if there is a relationship, it's not just a good interpersonal relationship, but we allow the work of the Holy Spirit to come in and to awake us and to like enlighten us, especially our dark parks. And then we can have a space to, to see truth with those opposite with my opinions or, or opposites in the political positions with me. Two reasons why recognizing and facing reality has become difficult for us in Hong Kong. The first reason I have made is that the scene still keeps changing. The dust had not settled. The second reason I have given was that the reality was too cruel, too unbearable, that people started running away from it. Why recognizing reality has become so difficult is polarization. We live in a polarized world. Mm. Just like the U.S. during the election time, I mean, people are divided into two camps. Media are divided into two camps. And for people who live in one camp, they are surrounded by propaganda 
by all kinds of ideology, news and report and analysis and social gossips and whatever. You live in your own world in which you see only one side. Yeah. For people, for example, in this situation of Hong Kong, for people who tend to support the government, maybe they grew up in a civil servant's family, then they would not listen to the other side. They would never understand why the young demonstrators went, went on to the street and used all sorts of means to, <clears throat> to express their anger. Yeah. Likewise, if you live in the demonstrators or their supporters, sympathizers camp, yeah. you would never understand how a policeman feels. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the past, when we are living under the so-called mass media time, we listen to the same radio, we watch the same TV program, we watch mainstream news papers who share the same headlines. Right. That, that's no more the case. That's, we are no longer in the mass media environment. Mm. We live in a polarized world. Truth is only one party's truth. How do we get back to that shared truth, a shared understanding of reality that would allow allow us to depolarize? For me, I'm doing the peace building program in the university. And I think that actually I help the student to, to build several uh, virtues. The first thing is somehow to have the inner peace of themselves, to recognize their own anger, their own grief, their own hurt in, inside themselves. Now, they need to have being healed being listened before they can listen to others. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the second thing is that they need to learn tolerance. Actually, I, I think that is somehow, that is a, a kind of virtue that we need to learn and cultivate. It is not given, but well, I'm, I I think in the U.S., for example, uh, uh, Parker Palmer, those are um, the, the circle of charts or those um, uh, listening exercises. Actually, they are very helpful uh, for the university students to, to learn how to listen to others, not just um, the, the surface about the political positions, but learn to listen some deep down yawning or design or their emotion and in a very long judgmental way. I want to help the young people to nurture a capacity to tolerate others. Over the past year, one of the many themes that has emerged from the social, cultural, and political collisions around justice, the meaning of truth and falsehood and polarization, is that spirituality and public life really are intimately related. And in both Kevin and Andrew's approach to social participation in Hong Kong, the interior life of prayer, meditation, and an encounter with God is what fuels the exterior life of action. The inside journey supports the outside journey. I had raised the difficulty of um, seeking truth in a polarized community. So let me now try to tackle it. Yeah. For Christians, we have a way to tackle it. And that way is called spirituality. Mm, agree. Interestingly, 
friends working in Christian bookstores told me that for the in the past year, only books about spirituality can sell like a hotcake. All other books remain on the shelf. A genuine need to know more and to practice spirituality and spiritual exercise inspired by, say, Ignatius or the Jesuit uh, meditation way and other kind of spiritual exercise, spiritual direction, spiritual counseling. I mean, it's happening everywhere. In Hong Kong, mainstream churches, because Christians felt the need to go inward, to go inside their heart, to find God, in order to have strength to face the outside world. Wow. I, I, I had this experience when I was staying in the hospital during that five months. Yeah. Every day, I experienced two journeys. One is the outside journey mm-hmm. in which I live like a patient, getting all kind of treatment, doing all kind of rehab. Mm-hmm. But there is another journey, inside journey, through meditation and prayer, through observing, through seeking, thinking, and praying. Mm-hmm. I was experiencing an inside journey, and it was only the strength, the peace, and the hope that you find in the inside journey that enable you to face the outside journey challenges. And I think many Christians in Hong Kong allow going through the same process. And church, pastors, we can help them. We can help them. So you're saying that social action really begins with a kind of interior movement. It begins with prayer. It begins with your internal world, with your heart. This is the very interesting scenario in Hong Kong, that if you have a chance to go to internet and then you search for umbrella movement Mm -hmm. uh, or Occupy Central, then you will find that actually kick off the movement in the church. And you will find that actually for Hong Kong Christian, I, I think the linkage between spirituality and social activism is not a, a new thing for us. Prayer, community, and action, it was these three things are always combined. Yeah. So now I think Calvin's uh, also points are very good thing that it uh, happened in Hong Kong. You will find that. Uh, a lot of churches, now they recognize that if they want to have a kind of reconciliation, at least within the church, then spirituality is important. Actually, uh, I I would like to say that since 2019, I think a lot of um, churches and uh, denominations invite me to give the talks exactly about spirituality and peace within the church. And actually, we're always related to the social situation in Hong Kong. And, and, and so I, I think Calvin's has made a very good observations to the Hong Kong situation. From the perspective of the rest of the world, in general, internationally, we're seeing the rise of identitarian politics. We're, we're seeing democracy 
begin to crumble in different parts of the world. The experiment of finding a shared truth in a shared public space and then seeking flourishing in that is crumbling even in the U.S. And so from the perspective of Hong Kong people, Hong Kong Christians in particular, what is your hope for the future of peace and the hope of democracy? For me, I, I think that non-Western Christians would like U.S. Christians to lift up a good Christian democracies in their country. I think U.S. Christianity and democracy, you have a very long tradition relationship with religion and democracy. But in the last few years, what happened in U.S. Christianity and U.S. society is very disappointed for those who look up for a democratic example in governance or in social order. And for a non-Western Christians, we always think that democracy is an outcome of Christian spirituality. Without that spirituality or without that Christian spirit or lifestyle, actually, democracy cannot work. Democracy cannot be a peaceful social order but run into a chaotic interest groups, conflicts, just like now having every, every day in every part of the world. And, and so that I, I think the relationship for peace and democracy from the perspective of non-Western Christians, and I, I hope that U.S. Christians work harder to think how to revitalize the Christian spirit in your society. Mm. Revitalizing that is, is absolutely important. I, I think that kind of public revitalization, as we've gone through this conversation, it's become clear that each of you are committed to the idea that we first need a kind of internal peace. And so, Kevin, I, I, what are you thinking about not, the kind of future of not, that kind of peace and healing of memory? It's not just internal peace. It's internal healing, healing of your memory. I remember reading Maroslav Wolf's book, The End of Memory. It says, you have to grasp tightly onto your identity that you are the beloved child of God. You have to hold on to it with all your strength. I, I, I understand it when I was in the hospital because when the memory of affection come, you cannot just forget it. You cannot let it grow pale. It won't. You cannot control it, suppress it. It would just suddenly pop up and hurt you and paralyze you again. It's very easy to identify yourself as the victim when mm. those memories of afflictions and wounds come up. So you have to hold on tight to your core, to your being, that you are the beloved child of God. Mm. And then you can only face those horrible memory, memory created by the shedding of blood, cannot be overcome by forgetfulness. It can only be overcome by fixing your eyes on the cross, the cross in Golgotha. Mm. You can only face your terrible past by looking at the face of Jesus on the cross. 
That's when the holy memory of the cross start shadowing, overwhelming, overtaking your own memory of the horrible affliction. I experienced that. I went through that. Healing start from there. It was only with this healing that you become able to face the past, to face your memory, to face the reality. Then you can start hope. I want to thank each of you for your time today and for your continued witness for seeking the truth and for an embrace of peace and working for that kind of healing, even amidst conflict and chaos. I'm inspired by each of your resilience and, and perseverance in, in seeking out the good of Hong Kong and being an example to the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you. production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured journalist Kevin Lau and theologian Andrew Kwok. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First, you could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week. 